Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, March 1st, 2022. Coming up, we hear from the author of a clever book on walking, one style or approach for each week of the year, and the science underlying the benefits of each. But first, a look at some of the recent news in science. Quantum mechanics governs the submicroscopic world of atoms. General relativity governs the large-scale world of black holes and distant galaxies. These two theories of physics also apply to our everyday lives, from computer chips and laser pointers to GPS satellites providing accurate directions on your smartphone's map. One of the goals in physics is to develop a grand unified theory that connects these two theories that govern how the universe works. One aspect that might connect the smallest scales of quantum mechanics with the very large scales of general relativity is time. General relativity explains how the rate that time flows depends on the strength of the local gravitational field. It is unclear how the flow of time impacts quantum mechanics, and in most formulations on that small scale, time is assumed to be constant and continuous. New results from the Jilla Laboratory at the University of Colorado in Boulder were able to measure the general relativistic effects on the flow of time at very small scales. Jilla is part of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, the folks who provide the atomic clocks used as the standards for time measurement. According to general relativity, time runs slower for objects that are in a stronger gravitational field, an effect called time dilation. So, for example, a clock on the surface of the Earth runs a little bit slower than the clock on a GPS satellite in orbit. And if you grew up on Mount Everest, you would be about a millisecond older than if you grew up at sea level. This new experiment at Jilla, as described in a paper published recently in the journal Nature, measured the effect of gravitational time dilation over a distance of only a millimeter, about the size of a grain of sand. The scientists measured this small-scale gravitational time dilation by creating two stacks of strontium atoms, one above the other, and measured the frequency of the light coming from these atoms. The measured frequency difference between the two stacks of atoms was very small, a time difference of about 10 billion billionths of a second. To make such a small measurement, their new technique had a precision equivalent to less than a millisecond over the age of the universe. That measurement precision is 50 times better than in any previous clock comparison. This is more than just a story about making a more accurate clock. It not only confirmed predictions by general relativity on a very small scale, but got closer to that connection to quantum mechanics and a grand unified theory. 
Such precise clocks and measurements can also help in the study of dark matter that pervades the universe, improving our understanding of the shape of the Earth, and potentially apply to the development of quantum computers. Here's a song from the past. If you were coming of age when Lionel Richie was popular, this song may offer you special appeal. If you were becoming an adult in the 60s, maybe your happy songs are the Beatles. Oh yeah, tell you something, I think you'll understand. When I say that something, I wanna hold your hand. In this time of COVID, inflation, climate change, war in the Ukraine, and other worries. Are you listening to music from your past more often? Are you finding special enjoyment from viewing photos from happy times in the past or talking with friends about those happy times? If you're doing any of this, you're being nostalgic. And it turns out that being nostalgic can have the beneficial side effect of reducing stress and pain. Scientists have documented for some time that nostalgia can reduce the pain, for instance, of a headache. But why does nostalgia have this pleasant effect? A study published yesterday in the Journal of Neuroscience suggests that the benefits involve a tiny area in the middle of the brain called the thalamus. Using magnetic resonance imaging, researchers at the Institute of Psychology of the Chinese Academy of Science documented that a simple pain, such as being exposed to a slightly uncomfortable heat, tended to make one well-known pain signaling area of the thalamus light up. Looking at photos from a happy time in the past made a different area of the thalamus light up while simultaneously making the pain signaling area less active. Indulging in nostalgia reduced the pain signal even when a person was being exposed to a pain, such as slightly excess heat. The researchers conclude that nostalgia is a documentable, non-drug way to reduce pain. They say the potential of a little trip down memory lane to help with pain and stress deserves further study. For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. And now let's jump ahead to the 90s. Introduction to her book, author Annabelle Street says, This is my love letter to walking. I hope it compels you to get up, get out, and get going, to relish the richness of a life lived frequently on foot and often in the wild open air. That love of walking in all kinds of weather, terrain, and styles comes through clearly in her book, 52 Ways to Walk. I hope listening to her does compel you to get up and out. Welcome to the show, Annabelle. I'm here with Annabelle Streets, which is a really great name for someone who just wrote a book on walking. And 
the book is titled 52 Ways to Walk. So we won't talk about all 52 of them, but maybe you can tell us some of your 52 ways that are your favorites, Annabelle. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Beth. Yes, I'm, I'm really looking forward to telling you some of my, my favorite ways of walking, and I, I won't bore you with all 52. <laughs> uh, but uh, I mean, the book covers all sorts of different ways from different places that you can walk in and how that changes you physiologically, how it changes you cognitively in your brain and how it changes your moods. But I also look at you know walking at different times of the day and night and different times of the year and in different weathers. Uh, those are the, the main things I look at because I was I was so surprised that they all had such dramatic changes uh, on, on us as uh, amazing, as amazing changes. And, um, you know, I was really impressed when I looked at the notes um, because as I was reading, you had obviously dug into the scientific literature, which was delightful to me. I was so happy to see that because some people make claims without support, but you have dug into the literature and you have pages and pages of notes that show references that corroborate some of the statements you make. And some of them were just mind boggling to me. Like for instance, I'll just pick a couple that blew my mind. Like, um, you have a chapter that's titled, um, walk with Vista vision. And you describe in the opening paragraphs how a woman was walking, scanning the landscape, and that led her to develop the technique that we know as EMDR, which is a, a sort of a, a traumatic healing technique of psychotherapy. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, that's right. In the book, I call it Vista vision, but sometimes it's called panoramic vision. And it's, uh, it's remarkably simple. It's really just about looking out into the distance. And I think it's more pertinent now than it's ever been because we're spending so much of our time looking at screens that are, you know, really, really up close to our eyes, particularly with iPhones. You know, we have the iPhone is so small that we have to have it really close to our, to our eyes. But actually what this what this does is it, it makes our eyes, if you imagine our eyes suddenly like two clenched fists, you know, those muscles are all tightly tightly activated and that's quite stressful and we don't really notice how stressful this is for our <clears throat> for our eyes and for our whole bodies until we step outside and we just look right into the distance either up at the sky <clears throat> or at the trees or you know if you're in a city you just look at the the line of uh, roofs in front of you and if you if you do that and you really really pay attention to your body you can feel the stress just draining away it's just implicitly very relaxing which of course is is what this uh, psychologist discovered that she she and she came back from her walks having noticed that when she looked into the distance she just felt much much calmer <clears throat> and things in her mind seemed to be sort of sorting themselves out almost without her having to do anything uh, so I now, whenever I step out of the house, it's the very first thing I do at the beginning of any walk is I just look straight out into the distance for as far as I can. Uh, and we really, we should all be doing that. Uh, and particularly that when we come off our laptops, you know, our eyes should go straight into the, into the distance. Right. Yeah, I totally agree with you about the issues with screens. And for me personally, I have a really rigorous sleep hygiene schedule. And so I try to shut the screens down um, well before I go to bed. And I noticed that in several of the chapters, you talk about the benefits to sleep of walking, especially the, um, the chapter that 
focused on walking with trees. And I love the Japanese term for that, the forest bathing. And in your notes, you talk a lot about the literature, much of which has come from Japanese scientists about the benefits of walking among trees. So maybe you could talk mm. about that because I love that idea. I know it's fantastic, isn't it? And the Japanese have been looking at it for <clears throat> nearly two decades now starting yes about just over two decades they've been exploring it and we're a little bit behind them but some of the studies that have come out in the last couple of years and, and not just from Japan actually coming out from all over the world uh, I found really really interesting and there are some you know very they've now isolated some of these particular compounds that are produced by pine trees specifically pine trees although many many trees produce different sorts of compounds but the, the phytoncides or the terpenes produced by pine trees are really conducive to sleep. And the best time of the day really is to go for a late afternoon walk among pine trees. And that has been found to be as helpful in helping you get to sleep as taking a sleeping pill, but of course, without any of the, without any of the side effects. So, so when I discovered this, I spent a lot of time, you know, I was always dashing off to pine forests. And my <laughs> husband would say, where on earth are you going? It's getting dark. And I'd say, I've, I've just got to go to the woods. <laughs> I've just got to go and have a walk in the woods. And, and once I noticed it, I just, I, I thought, gosh, yeah, this, this, just the smell is so, it's so clean and relaxing. And so to discover that there was a lot of science behind it, was um, was fabulous. Yeah, and of course you talk about taking smell walks and trying to identify the different smells that surround us because we're not really um, the kind of organism that orients to and identifies smells very readily. And you know we use visual and hearing much more, but I thought it was a very cool idea because that would work a part of our brain that we don't normally work. And of course that's really good for all of us to exercise our brains in unusual ways. And the, the chemicals that are released by pines and other trees are really lovely um, scents and we can detect them pretty easily because they have a certain pungency. But then there's all those other scents that you mentioned in that chapter on scent walking or smell walking that are more subtle and evocative of memories as well. Have you had some really memorable smell walks? Yes, I have. So I, I caught COVID at the beginning. And one of the things that happened to me was I lost my sense of smell. And it was about the time that I was, I was, I was researching this book. And uh, I found a smell expert, a sort of doctor, I call her a doctor of smells. She'd been doing smell walks for a long time. And she agreed to take me on a, on a smell walk to try and get my you know, sense of smell working again. And she was she was amazing because she we went to just a small market town that neither of us knew very well because she, she said it's good to go somewhere where the smells aren't familiar to you. And we we walked around like a couple of roguish dogs, really, because she was making me, you know, she would say, put just put your put your nose in the bin in, in a bin, you know, street bin, which I didn't really want to do. And then she was she would make me do that. And then she would say, right, tell me, what can you smell? And we went round, we went into shops and then we went into parks. So we did a mixture of sort of what I would call more rurally smells from the from greenery and trees. But we also did a lot of urban smells. And there was something very, very uh, meditative about it because we were just so immersed in the smells. And they weren't all nice smells, but they really made you think about the world that we live in and how little we use our sense of smell. And the interesting thing about smell is it's 
the only sense we have that that goes straight straight into our brain you know, bypassing all of these filtration processes and you know people think that's because in the past we needed we needed to be able to smell if something was rotting before we put it in our mouth so it's it's a very very fast reaction we have but one that we've more or less forgotten about um so i would recommend to anyone that you just go for a go for a smell walk, which is a very simple thing. I describe it in the book. And it's really just smelling things that you wouldn't normally think of smelling, a, a tree trunk or brickwork or, you know, pushing, a, pushing your nose into a, a, a pizza restaurant and just really breathing it in. Right. Um, and the idea that you could recover from your COVID anosmia is fantastic because there are so many people that haven't. Well, yes, because you can, you can retrain, you can retrain your, your sense of smell. And in fact, the cells that line our nostrils that help us smell, they are replaced every few weeks. So in fact, you know, it's, it's quite, if you can work on it, in fact, the, the, the doctor smell, as I call her, what she said was you, you've just got to concentrate and keep on, keep on smelling things and thinking about it. And you will be able to you know, bring those smell cells back to life. Right. Yeah. You can certainly retrain your brain in so many different ways if you focus on it mm. and that, that's another aspect of some of the other walks that you talked about um how specifically um walking with a goal of remembering can bring memories back and even improve your cognitive ability um, so maybe you could talk about <clears throat> excuse me some specific walks where you have that kind of experience or you might um, facilitate that kind of experience Yes, well, for memory, uh, walking, there's, a, there's quite a bit of quite obscure data. A lot, a lot of these studies that I came across, they weren't very widely known, uh, which made them particularly appealing to me because I thought, oh, this is, this is something new. Um, but one of them was done by a, um, a researcher in London, and it, he looked at backwards walking and the things that happen when you walk backwards and how just that process of walking in reverse how it unlocks certain memories so quite often I would when I was a lot of these chapters in the book you know I practiced myself so with the backwards walking I taught myself lots of poems I used to learn poems off by heart by walking backwards and then trying to learn them off by heart walking forwards and, and seeing which ones are most effective and I found that when I walked backwards I was able to uh, firstly lay down that poem I was trying to memorize I seem to lay it down more effectively and more quickly but also when I walked backwards the poem came back to me more quickly than if I was walking forwards oh that's amazing and uh, and researchers think that's because when we're going backwards we're really concentrating so we're we're concentrating so that we don't fall over or uh, trip over Whereas when we go forwards, we think, oh, I can do this. You know, this is this is a, this is a piece of cake. So, you know, we're all over the place. We're looking at the sky. We're we're smelling. We're, you know, listening to our phone. But when we go backwards, we're so focused. Our mind is so sort of pin sharp that it, that also seems to unlock things in our memory. So I thought that was that was very interesting. Right. Yeah, I think it makes for new synaptic connections. I had that experience. A friend turned me on to backward walking a few years ago. And so I, uh, I don't do it regularly, but I try it periodically. And you have to concentrate on your muscles and your balance because you can't just rely on 
the same old muscle patterns that we learned when we were toddlers. Everything is turned around and topsy-turvy and you can even run backwards, but it's, it's so um, demanding in terms of the focus. So I can see that, you know, since what the stuff that comes up in our brain, these random thoughts and associations and memories are patterns of association. So if you're activating new neural pathways when you're walking backwards, those would connect with different memories and mm. maybe open up new pathways, like for memorizing new poems. I'm going to try that. I love that idea. Well, try it, Beth, and let me know how you get on. Yeah, I will. I will. So um, the, another chapter that I love, because this is an idea that's been floating around for years, that was not really a pun intended, but the, where you say walk with ions. For years, I've been hearing people say, oh, there's negative ions out there. You know, it could be bad. It could be good. Nobody really knew about it. And I just sort of brushed that off. But you have a lot of scientific citations talking about the health effects of negative ions. So you got to talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, I was just like you, Beth, with negative air ions. I thought, oh, what a load of, it's a, this is just a load of woo-woo. Uh, and I remember speaking to a, a friend of mine who was a physicist at uh, Cambridge University, and he said, oh, it's just, a, it's just woo-woo. It's just, you know, it's just, it's ridiculous. It's nonsense. And so like you, I had just thought, oh, there's nothing in that. But then when I started digging around, there were all these, you know, these studies that seemed to suggest that actually there is there is something in it, and that when you when you have a molecule, you know, molecules sort of crashing around in a waterfall or in a, in waves or in a downpour, it it does seem that you know they've they've done all of these sort of laboratory tests and outdoor tests on groups of people who, for example, walked near waterfalls and groups of people who didn't walk near waterfalls, and then they've gone in and measured their lungs afterwards, and they found they found differences, which uh, even now I find it, you know, I, I can almost hardly believe it, but I do believe the data, <laughs> and there's clearly something in it. And so then, of course, I was going back looking at historical figures and looking at, uh, you know, the poet Coleridge, for example, who was a very famous waterfall chaser right. used to these great long walks from waterfall to waterfall and he always said yes it makes me feel so much better and he had he had terrible depression he would come back from his waterfall walks and saying my depression's gone so the science really the science that is happening today was just sort of supporting these anecdotes from the past and i and i rather liked that uh but so yes yeah, so waterfall crash crashing water and it's I think in my neighborhood, it's the crashing wind because we get these huge gale force windstorms where the the air molecules and whatever else is in the air are rubbing around, smashing up against each other, making these ions because the electrons are being pulled off. And mm. I can see how that those would have profound effects on our bodies because all of our cells have membranes that separate an inside that has a different charge from the outside of the cell. And so you, you slam a bunch of negative ions into them and that will affect the activity of so many different kinds of cells in our bodies. Yeah, and I think we're really, we're only just beginning to unpick the, the science behind this. And we're only just beginning really to take it seriously. So I'm expecting to see a lot more uh, data supporting some of these smaller, almost almost less believable things, uh, in the same way that we've discovered, you know, how the cells in the nose make nitric oxide and what that can do for your immunity. 
in the same way that we've discovered, you know, the, the, what, what breath, just breathing properly, how that can uh, expand your lungs and, and grow your lungs. So um, it's quite exciting, I think. Yeah, and I'm so glad you mentioned the nitric oxide because that's something I have been delving into lately and it has widespread effects throughout the body, cardiovascular health, so much. So yeah, we can just encourage people to uh, first read your book and then get out and try all these different ways of walking. But whatever way people walk, just walking is so beneficial. And um, hopefully our listeners will get out. And in Boulder, where we are, Boulder, Colorado, at 5,400 feet of elevation, people already know there's altitude benefits, which you also talk about in your book. And unfortunately, we won't have time to talk about those, but I will link to your book and to your website um, in our show notes. Thank you so much, Beth. That would be great. That was author Annabelle Streets. Her book, 52 Ways to Walk, takes you week by week through a smorgasbord of walks in silence, rain, mud, or wind, as well as sunshine, scents, and birdsong. She explains exactly how our bodies and minds benefit from a wide mix of terrain and styles of walking. It also details when to set out alone, when to share a walk with others, and the best walking techniques for women, children, the elderly, and the time-pressed. She also presents a cornucopia of science underpinning the many physical, emotional, and cognitive benefits you can reap by going walking. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran, and I produce this week's show. Headlines provided by Joel Parker and Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by The Police. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and links to the show notes. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.